Lord, thanks for the scriptures. I'm grateful for these accounts of people coming to faith in the early days of your earthly ministry. I pray that you'd help me now as I preach, that each one of us would feel encouraged to exercise the gift of faith. I ask it in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. In Genesis 28, uh, there's a very interesting statement that the patriarch Jacob makes. You might remember the story. Jacob has deceived, Jacob, whose name means deceiver, has deceived his brother out of his birthright and blessing, and his brother's going to kill him, so he flees at his mother's suggestion. And he's leaving, and on his trip, he comes to a place uh, called Luz, I think. It was called that. It's now called Bethel, and it's nightfall. So he gets a rock, and he sets it up as a pillow, and he puts his head on it there and goes to sleep. And while he is sleeping, God gives him a dream. And in the dream, there's a ladder or staircase that goes from heaven to earth, and there are angels ascending and descending upon it. And, um, and then God speaks to him and encourages him, blesses him, and promises to bring him back to that land. And when he wakes up, he says this. I want to read his exact words to you. <clears throat> it says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. I wonder if you've ever had that experience where there was a spiritual thing happening, and you were completely unaware You were just oblivious to it. You were going about your happy way, and God was doing a mighty thing right there, and you didn't know. I had that experience when I first came to faith. I grew up in a very religious kind of situation and had lots of external religion and all the trappings of the church, but I came into a group of people that were experiencing something totally beyond that. They had religion as well, but they were... Um, serious in their personal devotion to the Lord. Their prayer life was much deeper, and they were experiencing all kinds of God things, we might call them. And I, I had religion, but they had religion and a relationship. And I could join with Jacob and declare, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. Is it possible that God is at work in your life right now, and you're not aware of it? You're not open to it? Our sermon series right now for the season of Epiphany, I'm calling Partakers of the Promise, and our image has the camels, the magi traveling to Bethlehem. This season is about the gospel going out to all people, and the lectionary scriptures have various um, vignettes of how the gospel goes out, and um, I want to point out that that series name is, I like the word partakers. I've taken it from um, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 3, that the that the Gentiles are also partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus. And I like the word partaker because it's an active word. Faith is not meant to be passive. Yes, faith is a gift of God. You don't earn it. But it doesn't mean you simply sit back and just it's, have faith. Faith is meant to be exercised. Jesus is calling us to exercise faith. It's an active taking part in, a partaker of the promise. That's why I like that word so much. And I want to ask the question, do you think it's possible that God has more for you than you're currently experiencing? And I don't care if you've been a believer for a month or for 40 years. Do you think it's possible God has more for you? In our gospel reading, Nathaniel 
is blown away by Jesus' knowledge of some personal fact under a fig tree, and he says, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, oh yeah? You ain't seen nothing yet, right? There's more for you. He's going to show you so much more. And I wonder, is that possible for us? Have we, have we maybe settled for what currently is, and this is as good as it's going to be? Or maybe there's more. And this is where the partaking word comes in. Jesus said, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask and it will be given. There's an active part of faith, exercising faith. James, the apostle, says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So Jesus is calling forth the exercise of faith in this gospel passage and in other places. Now, our text is John chapter 1, verses 43 to the end of the chapter. It's on page 887 in the Pew Bibles. I think it's helpful to look at the scriptures. You got to verify the preaching, see if what I'm saying is actually in there, you know, see if this is true, test it. And I want to look at how Jesus calls forth the exercise of faith in a couple of categories. And the first one is the passing of the promise, how the promise of Jesus is passed from person to person to person, how Christianity um, expands. And I, I want to point out that in the paragraph right before this, there is also a similar thing happening. In fact, the word found occurs five times in the paragraph before and the paragraph we heard read. And the phrase come and see occurs in each paragraph. So it's twice in there. So there's something about seeking and finding. And there's, I think there's some instructions for us about how to go about this. And I want to recognize right away that there is a mystery of the initiative of God. That from our perspectives, we feel like we are finding God or we are seeking God, only to learn that he's been seeking us all along. I mean, I love it. The disciples say, we have found the one that Moses wrote about. And I think, you found him. He was lost. God was lost and you found him. Or really, he's been pursuing you the whole time and he finally let you catch him. He turned it around so you felt like you were seeking him. There's a real mystery in this, and it doesn't necessarily matter how it really works, but the initiative is always God's in everything. He is always first. He is the foremost, the preeminent one. He starts things. And so look in in the prior paragraph, Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John the Baptist says, behold, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then some of John's disciples, one is named as Andrew, they start to follow him. And, and he's, Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, where are you staying? And he says, come and you will see. There's an invitation there. Come and you will see. <clears throat> so then Andrew goes and finds his brother, Peter, and brings him. And Jesus renames him, or his name is Simon. G- Jesus renames him Peter. And then in our paragraph where it picks up, it says that Jesus decided to go up to Galilee and he found Philip. <clears throat> and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel. So you see how faith passes from person to person to person? It goes from Jesus to John the Baptist to Andrew to Simon, and then it goes Jesus to Philip to Nathaniel. And I invite you to think for a second, who in your life has God used to bring faith to you? Very rarely does someone just say, I picked up a Bible and I became a Christian. Usually if you picked up a Bible, you had questions, and you found someone, and you asked them, and then they maybe pointed you to someone that had better answers, and there are multiple people that are involved in coming to faith, because that's how 
the exercise of faith works. God still does that today. He has one person share with another, another, another. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the, salt of the earth. This is how it works. And I, <clears throat> I found great encouragement in a study that George Barna did. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he was asking Gen Z, so our teenagers today, uh, questions about sharing their faith. And I find as a Gen Xer <clears throat> and the baby boomers ahead of me and even the millennials behind me, that there is a reluctance to talk about faith and there is a resistance to hear people talk about faith in the culture of those ages. That's changing, according to Barna's recent study. He studied all these Gen Z people, our teenagers today, and asked them how they felt about talking about their faith with someone who doesn't share the same faith. And he was asking both believers and non-believers. And of, that, of the answer uh, that they got, the, the phrase, feel calm, feel calm or peaceful about it, 52% of these Christian Z generation people said they feel calm. Interestingly enough, 47% of the non-believers said they felt calm about it as well. This means Gen Z is open to talking about their faith with people, and the unbelievers or the people of other faith in that same group are happy to have the conversation. Culture has shifted on that. That's really exciting. I have great hope for this, this group of teenagers coming up. I mean, I see it in our own church, but um, I think something is shifting there. And maybe it's just that society now is a wide open landscape of spiritual ideas. The marketplace, if you will, of spiritual ideas is so wide, it's just normal to exchange and talk and ask questions, and it's not pushy. And those Z leaders saw sharing their faith did involve, um, it, it wasn't preaching per se, it was doing good deeds, it was telling their story of why they became a Christian. It was things like that. And, and it was even inviting people to faith events, church services, youth groups, that kind of thing. They saw all that as part of evangelism. It was way more natural. And in the same survey, only 27% used the phrase, they felt awkward about it. So only a quarter of them, but over half were happy to do it. I'm, I'm grateful because the way that we exercise faith is it goes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. That was happening in Jesus' day, and it's still happening today. So one exercise of, of our faith is the passing of the promise. <clears throat> Let's look at another thing in this text. There are two kinds of skepticisms. The skepticisms, I think, that John is pointing out would be the one that Nathaniel brings, and then the one that we see a little later, which is the religious leaders. So Nathaniel um, has a legitimate question. They... Philip says, hey, we found him. We found the one Moses talks about in the law and also what the prophets say, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And if they know enough to know Moses and the prophets, they also would know where the Messiah is supposed to come from. So right away, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I do think there's a, we'll call it a neighborly disdain maybe, a backyard brawl. Cana is his hometown, we learn in John chapter 1, which is only nine miles to the north of Nazareth. So maybe he's like, whatever, can anything good come out of you fill in your neighbor, neighboring town? But it's actually a legitimate question. And the, the other type of skeptics, the, the Pharisees, will say the same thing at the end of uh, John chapter 7, verse 52. Nicodemus, the skeptic uh, that came at night to Jesus but was open, is now starting to openly talk about it, and he says to the other Pharisees, 
hey, shouldn't we give this guy Jesus a hearing? He's doing all these signs and wonders. And they disdain him and say, what, are you from Galilee too? Look and see, no prophet comes out of there. So everybody knew that the prophet, the Messiah, was not supposed to come out of this town. So it's a legitimate question. And I actually like the answer, come and see. Just come and see. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Philip didn't actually have the answer to that question. He had more. He had a personal experience of Jesus already and had seen this guy and was like, this is not any normal rabbi. Come and see what I'm talking about. I think this is the one that Moses wrote about. We'll figure out the thing about Nazareth or wherever he's from later, but just consider this. <clears throat> so um, that, there's something very um, mysterious around the fig tree thing. So he decides to actually go. His type of skepticism didn't keep him away. Nathaniel comes, and Jesus says, truly, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Obviously, Jesus was thinking in his mind back to the Genesis 28 thing, the Jacob's ladder. Jacob's name means deceiver, and God renames him Israel later. And here is a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Jesus is making a contrast between Jacob and Nathaniel. And Nathaniel somewhat incredulously says, how do you know me? I've never seen you before. We've never met. How do you know anything about my character? And his answer is, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. I don't know what he saw. We don't know. We can speculate. Maybe he was under that fig tree angry at God and said, do you even hear my prayers? Do you ever see me? Maybe he was doing that. And then when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, he's blown away and goes, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. That does seem like a disproportionate response unless it was something that only Jesus could know by divine knowledge. Wow, this isn't just some miracle worker. This guy knows me without even having met me. He must know everything. So Jesus wins him right there, but it was the come and see thing that got that to happen. Philip didn't have to get caught into an argument about the birthplace of the Messiah. He simply said, I saw myself. This is, this is the one. You come and see. And Jesus does not disappoint. In fact, he exceeds expectations. Simon Peter, all these guys, he exceeds their expectations. I, I read an account of a, of a man named Thomas Huxley in Barclay's commentary on this section. Thomas Huxley was a renowned and brilliant um, scientist in the late um, 19th century. He debated William Wilberforce. He was, uh, Huxley was a strong supporter of um, Darwinism, evolution. He, he, he's credited with coining the term agnostic, although it's a Greek word, but he, he termed it to mean we can have no knowledge of God. He was not an atheist, meaning there is no God. He didn't try to take that that stance, he just simply said, we cannot know God. And, um, and he, he won a lot of these debates. In fact, he was credited with the demise of faith in much of England in his day. Um, William Wilberforce did not do well in the debate against Huxley. Huxley was very brilliant. And the story is told of a retreat one weekend out in the country with Huxley and a bunch of other people. And Sunday morning comes around, and a bunch of these people get dressed to go to church and drive into town. And Huxley, of course, is not going to go. And there's one particular man in the group who had a, a bright faith, a very vibrant knowledge of Jesus, a strong prayer life, but not nearly as intelligent as Huxley. But Huxley said to him, 
why does Christianity matter so much to you? Why are you a Christian? And he says, I, I don't want to debate you. I, I can't debate you. You're way smarter than I am. You'll talk circles around me. I, I don't want to get into a debate with you. And Huxley said, I, I'm sincerely asking, I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to debate you. Would you consider not going to church and answer my question, stay back here? And he does. He stays back. The other people go to church. And he very clearly and simply describes why he trusts Christ and what Jesus means for him and what it means that he's a Christian and how he's experienced Jesus. And at one point, Huxley gets tears in his eyes and he says, I would give my right hand to be able to believe that. As far as we know, he never became a Christian, but it was through the sincere, basically the come and see that got past this man's strong intellectual resistances and it touched him in the heart for the moment. Now, it's easy to build those walls right back up if you don't exercise faith, but I love, I love that that happened. Take heart that you don't have to have all the answers. You do have to have Jesus. If you're exercising your faith, you can share with somebody, come and see. Let me tell you what it's like to know Jesus. Let me tell you what he does in my life. Nobody can refute that. So exercising faith is about person to person passing it on. It's about the right kind of skepticism. It's okay to have real questions. And I want to tell you there are good answers out there. But don't use those questions to hold faith away. I have a neighbor who's very smart, who could win an argument. He could crush me in a debate every time. And I asked him one time about faith, because he knows I'm a pastor. And he threw up all of these straw men. He gave, he gave me the entire alpha course in one 45-minute diatribe in the car, and then was like, so therefore, we don't talk about religion. Doom. Shut the door. I went, okay, there are some good answers to those questions if you're ready. And he was not. He just, it was, that was the bad kind of skepticism. The good kind says, all right, well, I, I want to I explore some of this. I want to hear those good answers. I want to ask the questions in a sincere way. Nathaniel did that and, and saw something awesome, and Jesus said, you're going to see even more than this, which leads me to my third way of exercising faith, which is check your expectations. That question of does God have more for you than you're experiencing? Is your expectation of Jesus low? Because Nathaniel's expectation was, I'm impressed that you know something about me divinely, prophetically. And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I don't think that literally happened. As far as I can tell, the only place they saw angels was in both of Jesus' temptations. When he's tempted in the wilderness right after his baptism, it says angels attended to him. And when he's tempted in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross, an angel comes to encourage him. But angels ascending and descending is not what happens. You know what's interesting is the ladder in Jacob's story is for angels to go up and down, not for people. Jesus says, I'm the gate to heaven. Jesus has made a way for people to go up and down, or maybe put it this way, for in Jesus, God has brought heaven down to earth. He has made access to God possible. You see, greater things than this, they watched the Son of God die on a cross and on the third day rise to new life as promised. They got to be eyewitnesses of the atonement. All the sins of humanity were put away in that moment. They got to witness that. Indeed, greater things you will see than this. Nathaniel got to see that. How awesome is that? You know, Jesus is the new Bethel, the new house of God. They got to witness all that. So what, what's our takeaway? What's, you know, what do we do with this? 
Well, one, I want to encourage you to talk to those who have a bright, shining faith. You know, even if you're a believer, is somebody experiencing more in their life than you are, in their faith life? Ask them about it. Why is your prayer life, why do you get so many positive answers in your prayer life? Why do you seem so joyful despite the suffering you're going through? Help me understand that. You know, talk, talk to some people. And if you do have a strong faith, don't be afraid to share it. Use the come and see approach. Let me tell you what it means for me to know Jesus. This is what he's doing in my life. Nobody can argue you down on that, even if you don't have the answers. And then I do want to encourage the good kind of skepticism. Bring the real questions. I promise you there are really good answers out there. All that Nathaniel needed to do was come to our Christmas pageant, and he would have known why the Messiah, why the Messiah was born not in Nazareth but in Bethlehem and how that whole thing worked out. There was a good answer to it. Philip and Nathaniel just didn't have it right there. There are good answers. Don't be afraid to bring the questions. And then finally, I want to encourage you to expect more, really, to expect more of Jesus, but not wait for him to prove himself. It happens once you surrender. You got to give him your life. Surrender to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give him your life, and then watch what he'll do with it. And keep going back for more. Ask him, Lord, what more do you have for me? I promise you, he has more for each one of us. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, the example of these apostles, these early followers of you. It seems approachable because they were very much like us, broken, sinful, skeptical humans, and you worked through them. And I ask you to help us be partakers of this promise that we have in Jesus, that the exercise of our faith, Lord, would you, would you help us be faithful in witnessing? Would you bring us answers to questions? Would you increase our hunger for you? Lord, help us to desire you, and that in desiring you, we would seek you, and in seeking you, we would find you, and that we would not be disappointed because of who you are. Lord, I pray this in your holy name. Amen.